welcome to Mobile Growth, the podcast series where frontline growth marketing experts share their insights and experiences so you can become a better mobile marketer. That's what it's all about here. That's why we have the podcast series. That's why we have the blogs on the website and we have events around the world. I'm your host, Peggy Ann Seltz from Mobile Groove. And on my watch, this series will introduce you to the people who know how to drive growth. It's either because they are themselves growth marketers or they are involved somewhere in the ecosystem, either as a vendor or another type of company, just driving those results. And that's what we have today. We're going to be talking to John Hook, CRO. Home of Games. John, great to have you on uh, Mobile Growth. It's been a while. Our paths have crossed many times out there. Uh, sure has. It's great to be here, Peggy. Thanks for having us. And we're going to talk about Home of Games. We're going to talk about the very exciting, I mean, like super hot topic of hyper casual. But I first want people to understand a little bit more about you, Home of Games, because yes, you are a publisher, but you know, there are different types of publishers. And uh, you know, I hear this a lot at conferences. There are the publishers who just sort of come in and take a stake. And there are publishers who really sort of help almost like an accelerator. Tell me about what it's like at Home of Games when you get, you know, an app publisher on board with their game. What's what's the treatment there? Sure, it's, it's, it's a great analogy and um, it's amazing to still go to conferences and talk to people, even in other genres of gaming or non-gaming, and they don't realize the money that you can make from ad-based games. I said my background, uh, you know, on the supply side, working for companies like Ad Colony, it's, it's nothing new to me. But I think now in hyper-casual, um, actually, your analogy is right. If you look at some of the publishers, like the top-tier publishers, it's almost a blend of sort of business partner, consultant, accelerator, all into one. And that's certainly how we behave and very much try and distance ourselves to what I like to call the kind of get-rich-quick publishers who you know, really don't have your best interests at heart, are just trying to make a quick dime and then get out. And, you know, as a poor indie developer or, a small, you know, actually just forget the word developer, a small business, you're kind of left high and dry. So for us, it's very much about a, uh, a business partnership. Uh, we want the indie developers to succeed. We're looking for long-term relationships and we're looking to build a profitable partnership. Uh, and that's quite key because, you know, game revenue is is fantastic, but, you know, just because you're number one in the charts um, doesn't necessarily mean you're you're profitable making millions of dollars, despite what some people might think. Um, so for us, we have a, a very clear identification process and metrics that we're looking for when developers bring, you know, early stage concepts to us or what they think is the finished article that takes them all the way through then to sort of testing. We're incredibly obsessive about data. As much as we love gaming, emotion goes out of the window. It's all about what the data tells us from game design to creative to UA. So yeah, we have a really thorough process that we take our partners, our developers on from when we first meet them to getting the game live. And just because the game's live, we don't all sit back and, you know, have a beer and pat ourselves on the back. You know, that's when the next Phase. You could have a beer if it's a <laughs> yeah. Well, particularly particularly this heat for sure. But um, yeah, that that's also a kind of mistake. People think right, the game's in the app store. That's the end of the journey. That's just the start of the next phase, the next round of testing and data crunching, um, and then you know on to the next game. Absolutely. And, you know, I just want to also understand a little bit, we're going to turn it around. We're going to look at this from the, from the viewpoint of the developer, because we know what you're, what you're doing. Um, but 
Yeah, there's also sort of like a checklist. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, you know, the get rich quick organizations. uh, Okay, there's always going to be those, but you really don't want to have a checklist that says go to them. You want to have a checklist that allows you to make a detour because that's just giving up your IP and hoping for the best and moving on. It's a very short term thing. You guys at Home Games, I know you for a while. You're in it for the long haul. What is the checklist for a developer, you know, saying, yeah, I want a publishing partner. What do they need to look for? Sure. I mean, first off, there's never been a better time to be a hyper-casual game developer. The market is exploding. Consumers have got an insatiable appetite for games and the technology in the market that is driving this growth and revenue via monetization gets better by the week. So that, that said, selecting a publisher to partner with to guide you on this journey is critical. So I'd say the first couple of tips are, are, you know, common sense. It's kind of what you would do perhaps in day-to-day life. If you were looking to purchase some new technology yourself, you would go to your network. So who do they recommend? And in terms of who they recommend, it's not just their friend that they like hanging out with, but, you know, which publishers have successfully published games for them. Uh, and then also, you know, hit, hit the web. Look at, look at the App Store. Which publishers have worked on similar genres of game to you? Uh, see which publishers are putting out great, you know, content and tips and being invited to speak at the top conferences. You know, look at message boards. So Unity, for example, have got a great forum for developers. But I guess outside of that, uh, some, some top questions to ask would be, you know, first off, do you develop your own games? So you mentioned IP, um, you know, you need to be really careful to protect that. So if a publisher is also developing their own game, it's not a necessary red flag, but you might want to think and, and look in terms of the games that they've self-published versus published and see if there's anything similar to yours. The, the human factor, you know, do I get a dedicated account manager that's going to help me through this process? You know, and part of that process, do I, uh, do I get a certain level of transparency, i.e. when you're testing my game? What, what data are you going to give me? What data don't I get back? The kind of contractual side, I think early on trying to get an understanding on their commercial terms. So profit share splits, any standard clauses that they might have. You know, for example, uh, we hear a lot that some publishers are quite onerous in terms of if they reject one of your prototypes, you then can't take that to you know, another publisher once you've signed a contract with them. So I think up front, getting into the, the types of contract they offer is, is pretty key. Creative is, is crucial in hyper-casual. So I'd ask them about their creative capabilities in-house. You know, for example, if they don't have the capabilities to build playable ads that are a huge driver of hyper-casual growth, that would potentially be a red flag. And then you were asking me earlier about our, our process. Well, that should be a big question. Well, talk me through, share me some documentation on your onboarding and game testing process, um, because it will tell you a lot about the company if they have that clear process versus if they're just winging it and trying to get rich quick and just want to get your game through the door. And then probably the final one would be to connect me with one of your developers for a, uh, for a conversation, mm-hmm. ideally one in a kind of similar genre of game to you, um, and ask them what their experience was like. You know, what, what kind of level of communication did you get? Um, you know, how proactive were they? How many games have you published with them? Who else have you worked with? So, you know, in summary, it's, it's as you started, it's more about selecting a, a business partner and, you know, respect and transparency at the heart of that, who can take you through this, you know, game process, but ultimately a long lasting business relationship. I like the way you bring in partner because that's it exactly. I mean, you touched upon it and I want to go in deeper now. I just wanted to hear more about what app publishers should be thinking about, you know, developers rather. But uh, hypercasual is now a business. It is a really big thing. I'm reading a lot of articles. I'm writing a lot of articles myself, you know, looking at how brands are getting involved because, you know, it is the game genre, which is 
Well, it has a monetization model. Let's just put it that way. I'm not saying we broke the monetization model in the other game genres, you know, but IAP is a, can be an uphill battle. Hyper casual, I wouldn't say is, is simple, but how are you seeing it evolve from your perspective? So it's, it's a fantastic question. I think usually when, when you say the word hyper-casual, it conjures up images of, you know, I hear Flappy Bird a lot. <laughs> um, you know, people in their bedroom making low quality, highly pixelated, but addictive games that are in the charts for a couple of days. You know, mm. you, you make your money and then you, you disappear off the face of the earth. The, the reality is over the past couple of years, you know, arguably there's been no bigger trend in mobile than the rise of hyper-casual games that are totally dominating the, the free app download charts. And, you know, that rise is built on innovation in game and ad development, gameplay, UA and monetization. So I think the key changes for me have been game design has really grown up. If you, if you go into the app store now and look at some of the hyper-casual games, the games, they look good. They're not just uh, sort of really basic sort of sketchworks. They actually look like um, even sort of like more, you know, casual RPG, uh, more kind of <laughs> almost like, you know, console level games. I think the creative different aspect of game development has also uh, moved on hugely. There's some amazing platforms out there that enable you to effectively test hundreds of games in front of real users, actually in an ad unit. So the user doesn't think they're playing a real game, but actually what they're doing is, you know, testing one of our games in an ad. Uh, and this data that they're giving us allows us to tweak every aspect of the game. So, you know, the colors and shapes within the game, you know, could be a bubble or a car, you know, or a stick figure that are going to evoke the best engagement. And, uh, you know, the other area that's, that's changed a lot is the innovation in ad revenue and monetization, because in hyper-casual, you know, every impression counts. So there's some great UA and optimization tools uh, that we work with, you know, the likes of Tengen, IronSource and Mopub, because we have to optimize uh, super quickly across lots of different apps and new, uh, new networks that we're working with. So it's all about harvesting that impression level data and analyzing everything that we can get from a demand source. So ad placement, uh, the country, dwell time to determine really the most effective ad that we're going to show you because in hyper casual it's such a wide audience in terms of demographic age geography that you've got so many different cohorts so we're trying to figure out at a kind of simple level you know how do we get to know our users so for example let's say user a we know typically is going to max out at three ads so on the fourth fourth ad will serve them an iep based ad um, for one of our uh, games versus user b actually they max out at, at seven and it's that sort of level of data and intelligence that impacts everything we do, retention and revenue. So we've come such a long way in a very short period of time from where hypercasual started to, you know, an incredibly sophisticated sort of data driven machine. And the point about the, the data there is really interesting because, you know, it is a broad audience, but I've done a lot of research in this. And the great thing about hypercasual is it's broad, but it taps like the universal nerve. You know, you talked about sort of less sophisticated, super simple, addictive gameplay. I'll give you this. It may be that it has to start looking better, but the addictive gameplay is really what does it. And thankfully, I would imagine that's something we sort of all share, you know, something really cool that's easy to learn, hard to master. That'll keep our attention for a while. Is that what you're seeing as well? That, you know, yes, it is broad, but there's a lot of mileage and possibilities here. Oh, you're, you're, you're absolutely spot on. So I think it's interesting because we're talking about hyper-casual, but one thing we've not mentioned yet, and actually that isn't often mentioned in its wide-reaching nature, is that it's not actually an app store category. 
So if you go in there, hypercasual permeates multiple categories. You'll see it in puzzle and sport, casual, action, racing. So at times, it's you, you don't even know that you're playing a hypercasual game. The user won't think, "Oh, I'm I'm playing a hypercasual game." But you know, you're basically looking for that one tap mechanic. Um, it's got to be snackable, easy to understand, easy to play, and like you said, a, a game that everyone can play. And it, it also needs to be it needs to be innovative. I think once we see users playing our games a lot, they are looking for kind of new updates. And and this is where it gets super interesting, where you start asking yourself, "Have we broken the mold of hypercasual?" Because you know our, our games are are not throw games they're lasting three months six months if you look at some of the top games they, they've been in the charts for 12 months so you have to continually innovate during the game and have a real depth to gameplay to keep those users um, coming back but you're absolutely right I mean it's often talked about in the industry about kind of non-punitive gameplay you know you want the challenge but you want to feel good playing it you don't want to be constantly failing levels so you'll see that a lot in hyper casual they are relatively straightforward games so when when we build our ads you know, the, the ad is basically a game tutorial. If you can't figure out how to play this game, let's say in five seconds, you're not going to play this game. Um, so it's a great challenge for our creative team when we're building these creatives because we've got to get our message across in the shortest time possible. We don't have the luxury of a kind of a nice TV ad where we're going to have someone's attention for, you know, 15, 30 seconds. So yeah, there are, there are some really key elements that any game that we look to publish need to have. I like the segue you've given me, John. It's like a gift, you know, talking about messaging, talking about ads, exactly that. We do have to go to break, but listeners, when we come back, we'll be talking about how you can make this game work for you as a business and why advertisers should be jumping in on the action. So don't go away. We'll be right back. If you haven't already, be sure to check out the Mobile Growth Global Event Series where thousands of the world's top growth marketing experts come together to discover the latest in growth marketing innovation. We run events all around the world in cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Berlin, Montreal, and more. And our candid panel discussions feature industry leaders including Facebook, Google, Uber, EA, and loads of other top-tier publishers. So, attend our lineup of intimate workshops and gain the in-demand skills you need to stay on top of your growth marketing game. Expand your professional network and build meaningful relationships in a fun, friendly, publisher-first environment. When and where can you get in on the action? Well, just visit mobilegrowthsummit.com for a complete list of upcoming shows. And if you should decide to join us, and I hope that you will, then be sure to use our special promo code MGSPODCAST30 for an additional 30% off your ticket order. Once again, that's MGSPODCAST30, all caps, no spaces, for 30% off of your order. We hope to see you there. I certainly hope to see you there. And please, enjoy the rest of our episode. And we are back to mobile growth. I'm your host, Peggy Ann Saltz, and we have John Hook, CRO, Homa Games. John, before the break, we were talking all about, you know, hyper casual, why it's hot, what's the mechanics, what's going on, the money in it is amazing. Let's take a step back and say, okay, I'm a publisher. I mean, I'm, I'm a developer, rather. Uh, I have a concept. It's past just being sort of MVP. We're into the bowling alley, so to speak, that we can start talking about bringing it out. So how does the games publishing process work for you at Homa Games, but maybe highlighting what someone might want to know and, and have to know to come to you with a game in the first place? 
So it's a great question. So what I'd say is it's, it's never too early to reach out. We get approached by developers with games at completely different stages of uh, their development. But the first step is what we discussed earlier. Once you've kind of got your short list of publishers and never just reach out to one, you should always be reaching out to a few. The general next step is you reach out with your, your prototypes. It could be a short video or you'll set a test flight link. And then what the publisher will look to do is, you know, test your game with real users. So usually it's going to be on Facebook. If you don't have it already, they'll ask you to put the Facebook SDK in and they'll usually test in one country. And they'll be looking for uh, at the data for all aspects of your game. So in particular, in hyper-casual, we're looking at day one and day seven retention rates, average session time. So depending on the game, the, the, the level of development you've put into it already, this testing process can happen relatively quickly or it, it might take five to ten days. Now, each publisher is going to have their own metrics or performance thresholds that they have to, to measure. And I was reading something this morning on one of the Unity forums and uh, the, the developers were going to discussing what uh, these are. But usually we're pretty upfront with publishers about what we're looking for. Now, if you don't meet these thresholds, then you've got a couple of options. You want to take the feedback on board. And ideally, you should be getting some level of data and feedback so that you stand a chance of making some changes and then approaching some other publishers. If you don't get angry, again, it's not an emotional decision. We're purely looking at, at the data. So if you do pass the test, then you pretty quickly go on to the contract negotiation stage. Um, so once you agree on the contract, so we were discussing some of the sort of tips earlier that you need to look out for, then it's on to the sort of pre-publishing stage. So this is where the game design team are going to recommend a or should recommend a pre-launch roadmap for you. So this will include improvements to your gameplay, new features, and a bunch of A-B tests that we're gonna to want to do. There'll be a list of monetization and mediation SDKs to implement in the game if you haven't got them already. So it's usually the major video SDK players, you know, Vungle, Ag Connolly, Unity, along with the likes of sort of Iron Source and Mopub for mediation. And then there's going to be some other admin, like updating the App Store information in preparation for moving your game from the developer's account to the publisher's account. Uh, then there'll be some creative conversations. So usually the publisher will create uh, all of the creative in-house in multiple languages. And then from a UA cost, um, a bit like we were referring to earlier in terms of this sort of accelerated business model, this is where the publisher will cover all of those UA and growth costs up front. So the indie developer doesn't have to stump up thousands, millions of dollars to run their UA. So once all of that has happened, then you go live. And as I said earlier, it, it doesn't stop there. The, the publisher should be making constant tweaks to the creative, you know, adding new, new features. And all of this is going to be based off the, the data you're seeing. And, and the key thing throughout all of this to succeed is transparency. So it's sharing that data so the developer always knows what's happening and the ability for both sides to execute really, really quickly. Um, if you can't execute quickly and hyper-casual, you're, you're not going to succeed. I know a lot of people in the, in the space, and I was at a conference recently where I was talking to someone who's like, you know, just creates the concept of a hyper-casual game, doesn't even build the, the game yet based on the data. So it's like looking at the data and getting a feel for, okay, we sort of threw this out here. Let's see what's happening. And that will decide the gameplay, right? A little bit different, a little bit of re-engineering in the other direction. Kind of interesting, not for everyone, but you know, you get the feeling that this is very 
very sophisticated. How sophisticated does the app developer need to be in data to come to you to make it overall, but also, you know, to bring some value? It may not be that they are, you know, that data driven to begin with, but they're going to have to learn to be. Is that something that you also take on at first and then maybe, you know, walk them through it? I mean, or do they have to be, you know, a, you know, a rocket scientist from the get go? <laughs> No, you, you certainly don't have to be a rocket scientist or a data scientist to um, develop a hyper casual game. That's, uh, that's the publisher's job. That's our job is to look at what you've built and put you through our process and we all let the data do the talking. But mm-hmm. what, what I think you need to be open to as a developer is you just need to be open to feedback. And, you know, that's a game where you switch emotion off because you've built the game and you're probably really excited about it and just listen to the data. And if you listen to the feedback the publisher's giving you and you take that on board, you'll, you'll succeed. If you, if you kind of take it personally and your sort of ego's out there because you think this is the best game ever, that's going <laughs> to be a big challenge for you. Also, it's an, not, I wouldn't say it's a challenge, but it's an interesting aspect of the ecosystem for hypercasual because now the advertisers, first of all, they're there anyway, but I'm hearing more, you know, like, like real advertisers, you know, like brands, you know, big companies coming in to be a part of this, not necessarily the ones we knew at the start of hypercasual because that's the excitement. It's evolving. It's going to be a huge business. How do you bring together uh, you know, how do you deal with the advertisers? Do they have certain wishes in, in the game? How does that all work, I guess, to bring that all together, bring that to the table and make certain that everyone, you know, is being successful and getting their cut? Because it, as I said, great business. It makes a lot of sense to work together. So yeah, from, from an advertiser perspective, we're, we're fortunate to work with some incredible monetization partners who are doing a great job in market, educating advertisers about the opportunity within hyper-casual games uh, and the broad audience and global audience that you have the opportunity to get your brand in front of. So when we look at the, the numbers, it, it's, it's just incredible, really. We're looking at like a $2.5 billion market cap in 2019 for like hyper-casual. And the Iron Source have got some great research out there. And just on their network, you've got $660 million users globally playing hyper casual games you know and for us i mean i'm just taking a breath at that number right now i mean you just you just rattle it through but i mean it's like cause for a pause here that's a lot so it's it's it, it's it's incredible you know having spent a lot of time agency side i appreciate brand marketers often have their kind of tick list of digital trading but when you look at it in terms of market size and the opportunity to get in front of engaged consumers i struggle to think of a channel that gives you access to that many million of, of users and then you've got the the kind of global part of it so in in asia as a, i mean insatiable players of hyper casual games so 30 percent of all games downloaded in china are hyper casual games and that's coming from Appani. so it gives you an idea of the power and popularity popularity of hyper casual games and in terms of demographics again all those sort of uh, stereotypes go out the window you're looking at roughly you know 50 50 male female split android ios varies by market but for us you know 70 percent of our um, our players are aged 18 to 44 huge demographic in there you know it's not sort of 18 to 21 year olds and uh, are driving the growth you've got a huge demographic so when when we look at the ads in our games 
um, coming from our monetization partners, unlike other genres of games, you know, let's take RPG games. If you're playing an RPG game, you'd expect to see, you know, other sort of RPG sort of strategy type games in there. Well, for us, of course, there are ads from other hyper casual studios in there because it's an obvious place to find a hyper casual user. But a huge number of ads are coming from brands. You know, I'm talking, you know, Airbnb, Amazon, Apple Music, Deliveroo, Twitter. So it kind of shows you that when these these ads are coming into our games and you see them repeatedly, it's because these ads are being engaged by by our players um, and in turn backing out to the metrics that the, the brand advertiser has. So for me, I, I'm not sure really why it's even a question of should I be advertising in hyper casual games? The, the question is more kind of where and how much and what's the best creative and how can I adapt my brand to live in these hyper casual games? So for, for me, hyper casual games represent an incredible opportunity for brand advertisers. Can you share anything about the types of advertising that really fly here? I mean, I've heard a lot also about cross promotion goes really well. You know, we used to be afraid at the very start, you know, do not advertise your rival game in your game. You will regret it for the rest of your life. But actually it works really well because games also need to advertise and in hyper casual it works um, and nobody's losing because they're still going to stay with the addictive gameplay. It just might be that they might also have, you know, a persona uh, that maybe in the evening they're into midcore. Who knows? You know, it's not a problem. So that might work. What are some others and, and what are your thoughts on, on cross promotion? Yeah, I, th I mean, I think it's a it's a really interesting conversation because you're you're hitting on for me one of the bigger business opportunities of hyper casual. If you look at the relationship between hyper casual players and then players that also play IEP games, um, there's a fairly significant crossover. So in the the Iron Source research, you're looking at about a 70 80 percent crossover of hyper casual gamers and IEP based gamers. So that that tells me that. If I'm, a, if I'm a casual game studio or I have a portfolio of games, I have a couple of options. Obviously, I'm spending a lot of money on user acquisition, but it's telling me that hyper-casual users, as they start playing more hyper-casual games, are going to effectively go on this journey through hyper-casual and start being introduced to the concept of IEP. And we see that as, as, as they sort of make their first IEP transaction, they kind of break the mold. And we see that their ad behavior changes. They're suddenly more open to seeing you know, IEP-based game ads. Versus until they cross that, you know, that, uh, that canyon, they, they don't really do that. So I think hypercasual represents a big opportunity for global studios to really grow their, their player base. And, you know, cross promotion for us is a key part of that. Obviously, you need some level of critical mass to make that work. But going back to my earlier point about obsessing over impression level data, building up cohorts. That's what we want to do. We want to take our OMA Games players on a journey through our games. So if we know they like sport games, we're going to serve them ads for the other sport games that we're releasing. If they love puzzle games, well, you know, guess what they're going to see more, more ads for. And your other point, you know, there is there is a great respect and openness within the hyper casual community. So I don't think we're going to see a stop to the various hyper casual publishers advertising in each other's games, because as I said earlier, it's the obvious place to go and put your game in the shop window in another hyper casual game. Absolutely makes a lot of sense. And also the way that hyper casual is going to be evolving is interesting. It's not going to be only more for advertisers, but you know, probably also having longer life cycles for the games themselves. So it will be, it will just be a more is better thing. Not only do we have a lot of hyper casual games, but we'll probably have, I would imagine, more about the hyper casual game that keeps you 
engaged. So again, you know, that, that, that motor of monetization is always running. How, how do you see that? Yeah, so I think in, in terms of how it's going to evolve, obviously you mentioned kind of gameplay, you know, that life cycle uh, of mm -hmm. games is, is changing. So it already defies the category of throwaway games and hyper-casual games are behaving more like a casual game uh, as users, you know, convert to IP-based. So for me, this, that, that trend is even happening. So I, I, I've seen the term hyper-casual plus. It's going to be interesting to see what we call ourselves as a genre over the next 12 months, but also the kind of new tools and platforms around hyper-casual are, are developing. So on the one hand, you know, instant games, not necessarily a new thing because they've been a big hit in Asia for a while with the likes of Line and Tencent with WeChat mini games, offering sort of games in their messenger ecosystems. And then more recently, you know, Snap launched Snap Games uh, and Facebook have got their Instagame platform. And then I think on the, on the tool side, I mean, from my days at Ad Colony, the way we think about it is in a network, every impression has a value. So for us as a publisher, well, some games are going to work and some games don't work but every game we look at has a value to us it's it, it's time so a lot of games don't work there's a lot of testing a lot of resource and are therefore a lot of cost so i think really how we set our business up and i think how uh, the category is going to involve at a publisher level is really what needs to underpin your business is is technology it's all about automation so automation of processes from game testing to creative testing design ua to really get that competitive edge when it comes to speed of execution so i think that under the bonnet is is going to be the sort of battleground at a publisher level over the, the sort of next 12, 18 months. And those that are investing in technology and working with the sort of incredible partners that are in market and building on top of their platforms are the ones that will continue to thrive. And a final note, I think we're talking about the same Iron Source report. I think it was like the hard truth about hypercasual. One of those reports, you know, I highly recommend. A little bit of a data geek that I am, but you know, some reports are just better than others. And one point that came out, and I wanted you to comment on it, you know, is that discussion in the industry, you know, are these new games players, you know, new players, or are we seeing incrementality and cannibalization here? And actually, it sounds to me like we're hitting a new audience, but I'd like to have your thoughts on that in closing. Yeah, I mean, again, you look, you look at the re research, it's all about the data. I mean, 20% of these players coming into, um, into gaming, they, they've, never, they've never really played a game before. Hypercasual is the natural entry point for them. So the way, the way I think about hypercasual is, I, I think hypercasual is like Netflix, right? You have a global audience, you've got great content games across multiple types of game category with a huge runway for growth and people are just opening up the app store and finding great new games that they're spending lots of time in obviously the difference with netflix right now is we have ads and netflix don't but it's just an incredible it's an incredible content opportunity for everyone in the ecosystem you know developers publishers the monetization partners as well as as well as advertisers so you know for me hypercasual is this really exciting global gateway to consumers and the thing that makes it that actually easy is they tell us what they like it's not, if you think about back to my days as a brand marketeer, where I've got to run all these surveys and you're in three, six, 12 month planning cycles, you know, they tell us in real time if they like our games or not. And we can make a decision within minutes, hours, whether that game will be sunsetted and onto the next one. So I love it. And if you haven't downloaded a hyper casual game, go download one of our games and you'll never look back. 
And absolutely. I mean, I do it myself, so I'm with you on that one. You know, we met because we've met at Mobile Growth Summit events. Are you going to be speaking out there anytime soon? I am. I'm looking forward to it. There's, um, there's a great yep. hyper-casual panel in Berlin in mid-September that Tenjin are putting on. Um, they'll be on that panel, so really looking forward to it. Excellent. And in the meantime, how can our listeners stay up to date with you or Home of Games? You know, it might be we've got an app developer out there who says, yep, I want to get in touch with John. How does he do it? So we've got, you can access us through multiple channels. Check out our website, omagames.com, H-O-M-A games.com. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, emails, jh at omagames.com. Really simple. You find us on Instagram. Check out our games in the app store, uh, continually releasing new games. And yeah, we'd love to chat about hyper casual or just mobile in general, as you can probably tell from our conversation. We've known each other for a long time across different aspects of uh, the gaming ecosystem. Um, would love to chat. Absolutely. Well, I look forward to seeing you in Berlin because I'll be there as well. And listeners, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Mobile Growth Podcast. A quick reminder to visit mobilegrowthsummit.com for a complete list of our upcoming events, including, of course, Berlin. Hope to see you there. And don't forget to use the very special promo code MGSPODCAST30 for 30% off of your order. We hope to see you there. I hope to see you there. Of course, we encourage you to check out this and other episodes of the series. Again, go to mobilegrowthsummit.com or check it out on SoundCloud and coming soon to more channels, providing you more ways to listen in every week. So watch for that. We'll watch for you and we'll see you soon.